Um, it's so good to be here and to get to speak about prayer, which is something that many of us, I'm sure, have been taught to do and wrestled with in the complexity of all of our lives and what's happening in the world at the moment. And um, I said yes to this invitation so that I could think about this a little bit properly and put some words together. Um, and it's going to be a quite personal reflection, but also with some helpful thoughts from those who've written a lot about these things. Because I think it's always important that when we are going to speak and share that we do so from the reality of our experience as well as what we've read. And prayer of all things is a matter of something that we do, not just something that we talk about or write about. The question of prayer and its relationship to a transformed world is something that lies at the foundation of my own journey of faith. My work as an academic, my work as a community organiser, as an activist, and all the things that I've done. I grew up in Handsworth in the inner city of Birmingham, a place of ethnic and religious diversity, where new migrants have made a home for decades. From my grandparents' generation in the early 50s, to Eastern European migrants and refugees from around the world. It was and still is an area where people are usually struggling to make ends meet, just about getting by, one in which people live a paycheck away from poverty or are paid but still in poverty, and little has changed in my lifetime. But the particular faces and the groups who live there have changed. There are many churches of many traditions in Handsworth all of which have their own traditions of prayer. From the clearly written intercessions of the Anglican churches to the spontaneous outbursts of prayer by Pentecostals, the ones who raised me, accompanied by tears and shouts, all of them recognising the need to encounter God and for God to encounter them. But I was left asking even as a young person of maybe 10, 11 and 12, what are all of these churches for? And what difference does the power they speak of have to the issues affecting me as a young child? To my peers, to my friends, those hoping for a better life and a future. <coughs> Many of the churches had and still today do have a very good theology that is a theory of God's power and also of their own. Songs, sermons, conference themes, prayer meetings, all cultivated for me as a young person a very high expectation that God could change the world and that God's power through the church could make the world entirely different. But the details and the impacts for me left a lot to be desired. And as a young person, and I think this still happens today, I was left disillusioned by the gap between the picture I was painted at church and the reality of what I was seeing and experiencing in, this, in the world. And this, I think, lies at the basis of what many of our questions might actually be and our concerns about prayer. The matter of God, God's power and the church is the primary theological question that got me into academic research. It was as I was thinking about the questions of faith and the reality of what was happening in the world that I, my curiosity was piqued. And this question, I think, lies also at the basis of why so many lose faith. The question of what kind of God is God if God does exist? What kind of power does God have? And to do what? Can God make sure things will be okay? Despite the many prayers that were prayed in my church growing up and in many churches in my local area, for God's presence to be at work in communities, for young people to be saved from death, 
whether in this life or the next, for families to be restored. All around me were people whose lives were continually marked by lack of opportunity, by poverty and desperation. As a young person, my own reflections brought me to ask which of the few options I might choose. One, that God did not really exist. This seemed impossible to me as someone who even as a child had quite mystical experiences of God's presence in my very rich Pentecostal tradition. Secondly, that God existed but did not care or did not care enough to do anything about it, which seemed very unlikely from my own reading of the scriptures, even as a young person, especially in the Gospels. Or three, that there might be something I didn't quite understand about God and God's ways with us. And it was this third option that I have been wrestling with ever since. Whether working alongside churches as a community organiser or with charities or lecturing, I've been on a quest to discover how God is with us. And I want to share some of these thoughts with you in the rest of this talk. God seems to have made it so that the life of God is known to us through embodiment. This is, of course, a cornerstone of our Christian faith, that God took on a human body in order to make God's self known to us. Not content to remain distant and in the abstract, an idea or a deity far away from us, God chose to come to us in a form that we might connect with. And so for those of us who claim to believe in this God, living as if our faith can be disconnected from our bodies and from our experience is inconsistent, even anti-Christian. The Christian faith, I would suggest, does not come alive until it's put into practice, until bodies take on the call and faith is enacted in real life in relation to all of life. The care of God, more often than not, is known to us through the embodied faith of those around us. Faith, as James reminds us, without works is dead. And it is often the case, I think, that we think of prayer as the works which embody our faith. Prayer is, of course, an embodied action. It involves our bodies. This is particularly clear in my own tradition growing up, where prayer involved feeling God, not just speaking to God or being spoken to by God. Where women especially would weep and dance, where anybody could be slain in the spirit, which is not as terrible as it sounds. People would lay prostrate, shaking, shouting and dancing. But it is true even of the traditions that we may not think of as embodied. Ones which, which, ones which involve sensory practices, the act of kneeling, of using the rosary, of meditation of, upon images, all of these involve the body and the senses within the act of prayer. But this kind of embodied faith can be a very individualized matter, even when it takes place in a room with other people. It can so often be about me, speaking to God or hearing God speak to me by the power of the Spirit through the scriptures. Prayer can especially be individualised for those of us raised to have, to engage in certain practices like morning devotions where we sit alone with our Bibles and with our prayers, speaking to God and seeking to draw wisdom from the text. This kind of individualised prayer, whether we're alone in our bedrooms or speaking to God from our own vantage point in a room with others, can actually stand in the way of an embodiment of our faith. 
This is because our faith is ours and not just mine. So I must seek more of the spirit of Christ to be at work in me that I may be made whole. This wholeness, this oneness, I think, is the integration of my prayers with what I live. This is the integrity of me acting in line with my prayers. But if prayer, like embodying faith, is a collective project, then it is not simply a question of how I embody my faith or act in line with my prayers, but how we embody our prayers. And this is where the matter of prayer and justice, I think, coincide. Embodying our faith in Christ is done together. This is not necessarily about sitting in a room together, because that is not always possible, as we know. It is, it is about actively recognising that we in this church at this time may only be a toe in the body of Christ, or even one cell in a toe, and that we are not enough without the rest. Active recognition looks like being prepared to accept the truth our siblings tell us about the God who has met them, and to believe them and their testimony as we believe our own. This is not an ecclesiological point about church attendance, but it is about the fact that we cannot practice love alone. We cannot practice righteousness in isolation. We cannot be formed as one who loves neighbor and enemy in our prayer closets. This must be done with and alongside others, including those we would rather not have around, probably especially those. Prayer and a commitment to embodying what we pray for by the help of God is the only true prayer. A prayer without a commitment to action is empty ritual. And we find this made clear to us in the book of Isaiah, in the 58th chapter, with the reflections on fasting and prayer, which read, for day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? And the answer comes back in the third and fourth verse. On the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. For as God explains in verses 6 to 7 and 9, is this not the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here I am. We think of prayer sometimes, I think, and this may be me projecting here, as an act of handing over responsibility to God, who we often imagine has all the power and will to do whatever is required to make things right if we ask enough times. And the frustration can come instead when we find that God does not do it, whatever it is. God, it turns out, does not use power in the ways we want. Instead of ruling by force and domination, albeit, albeit for a benevolent cause, 
at least we often think so. We find ourselves faced with God who cries in the garden of Gethsemane, refusing to use his will to bring an end to anguish even when it is his own. A great temptation can arise for us when we are faced with this fact. We can decide to leave God behind or at least attempt to do so and move into a kind of functional atheism whereby we act and move in the world with no expectation that God can act or will. It is a prayerless form of activism, which depends entirely on human wisdom and strategy, epitomised by the phrase leaning on our own understanding. And lots of good things can be done with this mindset, I should add. It's not entirely ineffective, but it can over time wear down the soul as waves of frustration and despair drown the seeds of hope that God has placed in our hearts and which have been nurtured by others. Prayer, I think, should be considered circular. It is not an act whereby we as human beings hand over and abdicate responsibility to God we expect to step in and rule by force. Instead, it is an invitation for us to be changed inwardly, that we might have the power to become children of God to act in line with our faith claims, that the light of Christ who embodied the righteousness and justice of God might be seen in us and in the world. This commitment to embodying what we pray for is, I think, the point of connection between prayer and justice. It is the point at which we see that what we pray for is truly our heart's desire, not simply pious words. We can be very full of pious words, signals that we are true believers, when in reality we can be far from it. We have, I think, to be honest with ourselves, and with God at least, if in fact we hate our neighbour, as that seems to be the first stage in recovery from that particular sickness of the soul. But I'm afraid that our need to perform love, or at least to be seen to be loving, can often get in the way of genuine reflection on the genuineness or the lack of our love. We do not, in fact, confess the hate of our neighbour to God, the one we'd rather didn't exist, since they are black or gay or women or poor. Instead, we offer prayers about loving our neighbours while we do all we can to disinherit them of what God has laid up for them by grace. It is this gap which Ada Maria Isasi Diaz touches upon in her reflections on the meaning of solidarity within Christian ministry lamenting the ways in which sentiment has overtaken Christian thought in relation to justice. She writes, What worries me most is that solidarity is understood as a disposition. One can have it for a while, put it aside for whatever reason, and then pick it up again. Solidarity has come to mean agreement with, and that it has been given an ephemeral sense of supporting others that has little or nothing to do with liberative practice. Prayer, it seems, is one of the spaces in which we may express our disposition towards caring for others or our agreement with the cause of a particular group. But the challenge Isasi Diaz presents is that this is a reduced notion of solidarity which does not change the real conditions for those in need of justice. Christian solidarity, she teaches us, must be embodied, not reduced to sentiment to a feeling of empathy or even sadness and despair, but to action in line with the action of God. The challenge that we face often, I think, is a lack of courage. 
And this is where I think prayer can play an important role. As a good Pentecostal, of course, I believe very much in the presence of God who meets with us and empowers us on our journey, although I know Pentecostals aren't the only ones who believe that, I should say. We do like to overclaim the Holy Spirit as our own possession. If we admit our weakness, Christ is faithful to give us the strength we need to do what is required. I do not suggest that we are left alone in our weakness at all. But if we desire to be strengthened and we bring this to God, God will meet us in our place of weakness and give us the strength we need. Prayer is a space to draw strength from Christ who himself faced death and overcame it to the glory of God. Prayer is not only a space to confess our weakness and our sin and to receive the strength to do, to do what is right. It is also the space for us to practice deep attentiveness that leads us deeper into a more just engagement with others and even with ourselves. This is true, I think, of all contemplative forms of prayer which encourage stillness and silence and an openness to listening to the voice of God as opposed, <coughs> as opposed to our own. Because the Holy Spirit is a spirit of truth, she is, I believe, able to guide us and attend and cause us to attend to the truth in ourselves, in other people and in various places. And in the place of prayer, we might gain insight about the truth which we are in need, which we need to be listening to. My experience of this has been acute in the last few years as we've been experiencing the wide range of strains and stresses as a global community. Whether we think about the pandemic, the realities we've seen of anti-black violence, violence against women, the harm done to our LGBTQ plus siblings. Prayer has been a place of deep lament, of anger, of sadness and despair for many of us, I imagine, but also a place for gaining clarity and focus and peace. Through prayer, I have, I have learned what to attend to and who to attend to. To Jesus, first of all, and his life and ministry, as the one who brings God in front of our faces. And his presence is ongoing through the Holy Spirit, who teaches and guides us. To the stories around me, which have been historically silenced. To my own truths, the ways that God is present and working in my own life and in the lives of those around me. To the way that God is present, even in unexpected places. It has been a space to attend to power and privilege, both my own and those of those around me the words and silences of those with authority, the actions and inactions of those with power. Prayer is, I think, a space to bring all of what we see under the microscope of the Holy Spirit, who convicts us of sin, of righteousness and judgment. And it is discernment and attentiveness that I think we practice in prayer, in the moments that we are alone or among others. But these disciplines of prayer must, I think, be practiced together. I thought a lot about these spiritual practices as, as I thought about my own upbringing and tradition, thinking about what Pentecostalism in particular contributes to this kind of conversation. Pentecostalism has a long tradition of what we call tarrying. A tarrying service is known within black churches as a time given over to waiting for God. It is a prayer meeting in which there is a preparedness to wait for as long as it takes for God to speak, for people to experience God's presence in ways that are undeniable for them, 
Normally this might include tarrying for the gift of speaking in tongues, for healing, or other manifestations of God's presence. It is not a passive waiting, but one filled with worship, with a determination to hear God, a willingness to submit oneself to God's guidance. Growing up, we would have half-night prayer meetings at my church, starting at 6 p.m. and ending at midnight, with children and young people sleeping or almost sleeping in the corners. Sometimes that was their parents too. <laughs> and adults took it in turn to lead the prayers. These spaces were filled with women, many of whom also led prayers or shared divine revelations or biblical reflections with the congregation gathered there to pray. Often these black women were from a range of socioeconomic classes, but almost always the children of working class families who arrived in the UK a generation before. These women were the foundation, the, the roof and the walls of the house of God that I grew up in. Single mothers of young children would bring them to the prayer meeting. Older women whose children were grown up would come. The elderly would be picked up in the minibus and brought by someone so they didn't miss out. These women had lived through great turmoil, struggle and pain, and prayer was for them a lifeline, a source of power and strength. Prayer meetings for these women I knew, I knew growing, up, growing up were a space to also wrestle with God for justice, for peace, for a new life which they could only imagine was possible through divine intervention. It was a space to lament, to cry out for change, to have a kind of therapeutic release, to be heard, to be healed. The woman whose son had been stabbed and killed would take the microphone and with tears running down her face, cry out for peace on our streets and for God's protection over young people. The mum struggling to raise her children and pay all the bills to pray for financial breakthrough, a term used to describe an upward turn in their financial situation. The woman who knew too well the trauma of a breakdown in her family would pray for the healing of families and communities, for children to be brought up well, for homes to be places of peace. They, in the words of Cole Arthur Riley, discovered that they were not calling out to a teacher, but inviting God as a nurturer. A mother who hears her child crying in the night. She wakes, rises and comes to the place where we lie. She brushes her holy warmth against our flesh and says, I'm here. I bring these women to the fore because too often in discussing prayer, we do so from the advantage of the privileged, from the position of the privileged. In a similar way to Howard Thurman asking what the gospel means for those whose backs are against the wall, we must ask not just what do we learn about prayer from those who have, but what we learn from those who have not. So we emphasize the need to pray often. So we emphasize the need to pray for, to pray for those who experience suffering or oppression, not imagining that many of us who pray do so from a position of being weighed down by various forms of violence and exclusion and death perpetuated by others and by the systems in which we live. The prayers of these women were born out of deep pain, of the struggles they faced in a world that was unfair and continues to be so. They prayed to God for solutions to the problems that weighed upon them, problems which were so often the result of circumstances they did not create and could not control. In many cases were heard testimonies as people shared about the shifts that had occurred in their lives which they doubted were possible 
and they thanked God for. But years later, the prayers for financial breakthrough continued. New mothers took the mic to pray for an end to poverty and violence and breakdowns in relationship continued. Our prayers can, I think, be laced with privilege and betray our power and positionality in the world. What does it mean for our prayers to be led by the prayers of the least of these? I do not mean that we pray our will for those who are not like us, but that we in our prayers, whether those are stated, unstated or embodied, be turned towards the needs of those who suffer, if we ourselves are not those people. In seeking to follow the example of Christ who did not see equality with God as something to be grasped, what might it mean for us to let go of our grasping prayers? We'd seek to elevate us and our perspectives to the place of God over others. In an unfair world where justice and peace do not reign, we should be disturbed, I think, in relation to our privilege and comforted in relation to our suffering as we pray. Trusting always in the spirit who groans on our behalf when we do not know what to pray and whose life empowers us to live as new creation in the midst of death. Thank you.